Hey there. I'm just sitting here nursing a bang. I'm just sitting here nursing a bang. It's a blue raz bang. Nursing a blue raz. Yeah, you know, whenever there's a hot topic in the news, I don't know about the news, but just in the, I don't know, when there's something traveling its way through the collective headspace, I try to resist the urge to talk about it unless I actually have something to say about it. Because the way those work is they lure you in. They make you think that you have something to say when you actually don't. Because you notice that everybody who's saying something about it seems to be saying nothing. And that should be a warning sign. That should be like a skull. That should be like a head on a stake. You've been traveling and you see that there, oh, there's a village up ahead. There's a village up ahead. Oh, I'm going to get some rest. I'm going to find a nice inn. I'm going to go to that village and I'm going to find a nice inn. Get myself an ale. Hang my sword and shield up. And then you get to the entrance of the village and there's a, a head on a stake. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to keep going. To me, that's what it's like when everybody is talking about something. But they seem to be saying nothing. I go, oh, there's a head on a stake. I better keep moving. But today I'm going to hang out. I'm going to go into that village that's decorated by severed heads on the fence posts. I'm going to go in. And that's this movie, Karen, which I didn't even watch the trailer for. I didn't need to watch the trailer. I saw a couple stills. I caught the vibe of it. Of it. And I have gone into the Karen phenomenon on here before I know I did last year I know that I've talked about it probably quite a bit actually over the years if not with that word in mind just the idea of it because I first started to notice the foundations of this about 10 years ago and I would say it really started to ramp up around 2013 2014 just I don't know that that's the exact time but just that seems to to be around the time that I first started to notice this. And I first noticed this with my social group, like friends and acquaintances that I was spending time with. At that point in time, I had a, a much wider social group and I, I would go out, do happy hour with people, spend time with people. And I noticed that Friends and acquaintances, I even had a you know a couple of girls I dated like this, friends and acquaintances who worked in the service industry at a restaurant, bar, cafe, coffee shop. When we would all hang out, they would kind of commiserate about their jobs, which is everybody's right. You know, it is a slippery slope. Like when you're venting about work, it is a slippery slope and you can just become that person who won't shut up about your boss and you make everybody uncomfortable. Uh, you know, it's it's a slippery slope to just being the person who complains about work all the time. But no, it is something you need to be able to do, especially with people who can relate. So I don't fault people for this at all. But something that I was privy to quite a few times was young women, let's say in their 20s and 30s, who worked in the service industry complaining about their jobs. And I've never worked in that industry. I have a lot of respect for it because I can't imagine dealing with the things they deal with. And I don't have any personal experience in it myself. I don't think that I would, I don't think my sanity would do that well under those circumstances, but maybe it would be good for me. Maybe it would be humbling to be a waiter 
or to scoop someone's ice cream. Oh yeah, you know Eric, he uh, Eric quit everything he was doing in life. He quit all of his hobbies and interests and he severed all of his relationships so that he could go he could go serve ice cream and learn what it's like to work in the service industry. He's an ice cream scooper. No, but I, I mean I can't even imagine what it's like to work in that industry, especially every day. But I started to notice a trend in the complaints where these young women, and and just to explain, you know, I'm not singling anybody out, but just to explain, these are almost all college-educated women in their 20s and 30s from good homes, middle to upper-middle-class homes, usually usually a decent relationship with their parents, decent to good, and all liberal, all distinctly left of center. And so there's that, these women had that in common, but I noticed they also started to complain more and more about middle-aged white ladies. When you'd hear these sort of venting sessions, you'd hear somebody go, oh, work was awful. God, middle-aged white ladies are the worst. Middle-aged white ladies, they're the worst customers. They're the most entitled and demanding. And then someone else would say, yeah, this middle-aged white lady came in five minutes before it closed and she ordered the pork. She ordered the pork and she, it, it was served to her. And at this point, it's after closing. And then she said, this is too cold. This hasn't been cooked all the way. Take this back and cook it again. Because middle-aged white ladies are the worst. You know, I know there's a, an assortment of accents. I've had trouble lately where I'll be like doing an accent and then it'll just like turn into my normal voice and then it'll turn into another accent and then it'll turn back into the previous accent. It's just like this, the different voices are just merging, I think is what's happening. But, you know, I noticed that complaint more and more often and I didn't really think about it at the time, to be honest. You know, the intensity of these conversations was not where it's at now. And it existed, you know, mostly on the fringes. Like it was something that you probably wouldn't have heard unless you were at happy hour with a bunch of 20 to 30 something women on the West Coast who went to liberal arts colleges. You know what I mean? It's something you probably wouldn't have really heard elsewhere. But I started to notice it more and more, which was just that a lot of venting about middle aged white women and how demanding and entitled they were, specifically in a customer service context. And like I said, I didn't really think too much about it. I just noticed it. And I think the reason I noticed it is because on one hand, it was framed as just normal venting, but I noticed that there was kind of a signaling going on. They would kind of put an extra emphasis, almost like if it was written, it would have been put in, it would have been made bold or in italics. It would have been italicized or bolded, bolded. And it was when they would say the words, Middle-aged white lady. They were kind of signaling something when they said that. And not that I don't believe that a certain type of middle-aged white lady is difficult. Because I've seen it myself. I mean, I think most people are aware of that. Most people are aware of a certain sort of middle-aged woman who is very nitpicky and demanding. I mean, it's it's pretty much the source of mother-in-law jokes, too, for that matter. 
like, oh, the mother-in-law visited this weekend. Oh, you know how she is. She went around the house, she, you know. She demanded a glass of wine, and then she went around my house, like, pointing out the dust. You know, it's not that far off, honestly, from a mother-in-law joke, except it's like the middle-aged white lady. And it's you, I could just tell there was a sort of political signaling going on even then. Like, even if this was a real phenomenon they noticed, because I'm not talking about stupid people here, I'm talking about smart people. And I believe there was a phenomenon they noticed. But then there's also the idea that you live in a place that's heavily white. Women, by their very nature, middle-aged women, by their very nature, go out to eat more than anybody else. I don't know what the numbers are on that. But, I mean, women are the ones who are constantly, like, meeting up for lunch, lunch dates. Oh, hey, are we doing our, our Friday lunch date? Oh, hey, Kathy, are we doing our our Friday lunch date this week? You know, while men do that, it's not nearly to the extent that women do it. Like women like to go, like my mom used to like to go shopping with one of her friends and then they would have lunch. You know, it, it was like, it was a weekly thing they did. They, she did it with a bunch of her friends. You know, it's something that women do more than men from my observation and, and in my experience, you know. I just think women tend to enjoy social get-togethers that involve getting coffee or food, lunch, you know, these sort of things. So if you live in a predominantly white area and you work in the service industry, you're probably going to be dealing with a higher number of middle-aged white women than any other group. I'm just guessing. But I feel like when I go into a cafe or a restaurant or a coffee shop, I feel like most of the people that I see there in groups are almost always middle-aged women. There's even this thing like this like pink hats club. Not, it's, I don't think it's pink. I think it's like, I think it's the red hat club. And I don't know if this thing is national. I feel like it's some old thing that women have been doing forever. But sometimes you'll go into a restaurant and the red hat club is meeting. And there'll be a big table and all these women are wearing a red hat. It's like some sort of ladies lunch, a ladies luncheon. I mean, my mom even used to go to something called the ladies luncheon and it was just senior citizen women. So, I mean, while men do this, they don't do it to nearly the same level that women do. And so as a result, these younger women who work in customer service they're dealing with a lot more middle-aged white women, at least in this part of the country, than they are any other group. So they're going to see a, a much wider range of behavior. They're going to have, it's a much larger sample size. So you're going to experience, you're going to have more negative experiences with middle-aged white women than you are anybody else because you're having more experiences, period, with them. And because we all have a negativity bias, that's going to stick out to us more. Like if you have a bunch of middle-aged white ladies who just, they're nice, they're sweet, which many of them are. But if you have a bunch of those, you're going to enjoy that experience. But it's not going to be something that you go home and talk to your boyfriend about. It's not going to be something that you go home and talk to your friends about at the bar. You're not going to go to the bar and be like, oh, I just got off work. You wouldn't believe, oh, the sweetest lady was there. The sweetest lady was there. She complimented my hair. I got her order wrong, but she said, oh, it's fine. I love this too. It's totally fine. I asked her if she was sure, and she said, yeah, it's to totally. I love this too. 
Oh, you brought me the wonton soup instead of the pho? I love wonton soup too, honey. You know, she, she was a sweet... And then she gave me a $500,000 tip. Changed my life forever. And then I went and I blew it at the casino. But anyway, back to my point. Just that, you know, unless something is truly an extraordinarily good customer service experience, a waiter or, wait- or waitress isn't going to get off work and talk about it. Whereas that one time that somebody just really rubbed them the wrong way, asked for too much, was rude. That's going to be the thing they need to get off their chest when they see people. So there's already a negativity bias to that. And then you're experiencing much more of a certain group of people. Of course, the Karen is going to become a observable phenomenon when you're dealing mainly with women in that age group. So I think that's part of it. I don't think I really don't buy this idea that middle-aged white women are monsters. They can be. Anybody can be. I don't buy the idea that middle-aged white women are particularly more monstrous than any other group. I just don't buy that idea. My experience tells me otherwise. And, uh, But I also, I wouldn't pretend to... You know, I can't pretend that I've ever walked in a waitress's shoes, even though I do that every Friday. I, I, I put a waitress's shoes on and I just walk around my house. No, but uh, I can't pretend to know what it's like to walk a to walk a mile in the kitchen wearing a waitress's shoes while carrying plates. Now, I can't pretend to know what that's like, and I'm not trying to take anybody's right away. I'm not trying to take away anybody's right to observe something and comment on it. But I do think that there is a bias to it as well, where like if you lived in Atlanta, Georgia, where like a much higher percentage of your customer base is going to be, let's say black, you have a lot more black people coming into your restaurant in a city like Atlanta than a city like Olympia or Portland or Seattle. Don't you think that's going to, change your perception maybe you know because there are stereotypes about that too and like the sort of person who says oh you know the worst customer the restaurants are uh, middle-aged white ladies is that that different than from saying black people don't tip which is a stereotype i don't know if that's true there's a stereo there's a pervasive stereotype that you see all over that says that Black people don't give good tips at restaurants. Well, is that in part because maybe, you know, somebody's around a much higher concentration of black people? And again, the negativity bias sticks out. I don't know. I have no clue. I have no clue which stereotype. stereotype. I have no idea what restaurant stereotypes are true and, and which ones aren't. But I do wonder if people who say that, like, is the sort of person who sheepishly says to their friend, like, yeah, you know, the thing is, though, working at the restaurant, I've realized that black people really don't tip. Like the person who confesses that to somebody, are they working at a place where like one black person comes in a month or are they working at a place where it's like 90 percent black people? Therefore, there's a much higher chance that they're going to notice the people who don't tip well. 
Because if it's like one black person comes into your restaurant a month, which I feel like is probably true here, and that, and then every time they don't tip, well, that's a little weird. But again, I think there's this negativity bias that goes along with dealing with a high concentration of certain people. And somebody notices it, and somebody else noticing it makes that other person more aware of that. And you end up with this sort of stereotype. And like, I would say the Karen is absolutely a stereotype. That is by its very definition a stereotype. But I guess it's kind of funny to me because the sort of person who has perpetuated the whole Karen stereotype, that like middle-aged white ladies are by default more likely to be demanding and entitled, they would probably be horribly offended at the idea of stereotyping another group. Even though the circumstances of stereotyping them are probably very similar where it's like you're dealing with a higher concentration of that person therefore you're going to see the ups and downs of that demographic and you're probably going to notice the downsides a lot more often i don't know i'm probably coming up with a really convoluted explanation for this and i do believe there's probably a real phenomenon that people are noticing but you can also see where in turning that phenomenon that actually requires a description Like the Karen phenomenon started out the way I see it. The Karen phenomenon started out with people complaining about middle-aged white women in service industry interactions, in customer service interactions. And then somebody else was like, that's a thing. Oh my God, that's a thing. They used those awful words and they were like, oh yeah, that, that totally is a thing. And then somebody came up with the term Karen for it, and they were like, that's the name of the thing. But then you see where people start looking for Karens. They start going out looking for opportunities. People doing otherwise normal things become Karens. And people become afraid to become a Karen. Like there are people who are afraid to send back a meal that was undercooked because they don't want to be a Karen. So it instills fear into people, actually, which is funny. And I, I heard somebody say this, and I, did, I can't take credit for this idea, but I don't know who to give credit to because it was just some anonymous person. It was a comment I saw online where someone mentioned, the funny part about all this is it's really, it's, it's, it's sort of challenged people's right to demand good service. Like if somebody is giving you poor service and you complain, you could now be accused of being a Karen, even though you just want adequate service. But I I would guarantee you there are people who have chosen not to complain because they're terrified that in complaining they're going to get called a Karen. They're afraid to point out a mistake that, let's say, somebody in the service industry made because, oh, God, if I do that, I'm going to be a Karen. And so the definition of a Karen has really expanded, and nothing shows that more than the fact that now Karen is associated with somebody who tries to get black people killed by the police. It went from, oh, this is a difficult customer to have at restaurants, to this woman is an agent of white supremacy with the code name Karen. She's trying to kill black people. She's trying to kill black people. You know, it's got the definition, if if anything shows how the definition of a buzzword can get just blown out completely, I think that's maybe the best example. And now there's a movie, an algorithm created a movie about that because people were talking about it so much. And what's funny about the name Karen, though, is people were upset about that. 
when the whole idea of the Karen reached peak saturation a year ago, a childhood friend's mom was on Facebook complaining about it. And she's a very liberal artistic woman. So I don't think she was opposed to the idea of the Karen. I don't think she was opposed to the criticism of a certain type of person. But she was really upset about the use of the word Karen. And I imagine it's because she has a lot of friends named Karen. You know, if she's my parents' generation, probably half of her friends are named Karen. So she was like, she was saying how it's like, it's so hateful to use the name Karen to refer to this awful behavior. And I laughed because it's like, I understand where she's coming from completely. Like taking a name and deciding that that name now represents this allegedly horrible conduct that a certain type of person does. You know, I totally understand where she's coming from, but at the same time, I couldn't care less about the name Karen being used because we do that with tons of stuff. Like, are you also going to defend Peeping Tom? Like, are you going to, or rather, are you going to defend the name Tom because it's in the, the phrase Peeping Tom? Like, at some point, somebody knew a guy named Tom who who liked to look at girls through their window. And somehow, I mean, it's an amazing... I don't even understand how it happens, but the idea that somebody at one point called voyeurs peeping toms and it just stuck. And I use it all the time. Like if someone were to talk about like somebody looking in a window, my go-to would be peeping Tom. That has become the phrase for that behavior. It sucks for guys named Tom. But at the same time, people don't go into job interviews named like a guy named Tom doesn't go into a job interview and have the interviewer go, I see that your name's Tom. Uh, you wouldn't happen to also be a peeping Tom, would you? Because we don't want any peeping Toms working at our company. You know, it's not like people hear that you have the name Tom and judge you and think, oh, if your name's Tom, you must be a peeping Tom. Same thing for Karen. It's not like women named Karen go, it's not like somebody truly judges them for having that name. Somebody probably thinks of it. And I guess that sucks. Like if your name was Karen right around the time that all of these people learned that that was a buzzword to describe a certain sort of behavior, it probably sucked because people in their heads are thinking, oh, Karen. (laughs) Oh, your name's Karen, huh? (laughs) It's almost like that was a real name for generations before we applied it to one specific uh set of behavior but you know it's just funny that my friend's mom was like going off like she was really and her name wasn't karen but it was so funny that she was so defensive of that because it's it's like a doubting thomas not that anybody actually says that anymore you're not being a doubting thomas are you something about toms you're either a doubting thomas or a peeping tom a lazy susan i guess lazy susan is it refers to is that called a dumb waiter too a dumb waiter But a lazy Susan, you figure, yeah, it refers to this object that you use to this this spinning object you can put condiments on on a table so that you don't have to pass it to people. But it's obviously referring to the fact that at some point somebody knew a lazy woman named Susan. There's also negative Nancy. Although there's a few of those. There's a few of those where it's it's rhyming. But at least with that, there's a a qualifier. 
Like there's some, it's not just calling someone a Tom. Like whenever like somebody came up with the phrase peeping Tom, it would have been completely different if they just called that a Tom. Oh, someone was looking in in your window. That's a Tom. No, they added peeping to it. There's a qualifier so that you know it's not just a Tom, it's a peeping Tom. It's not just a Nancy, it's a negative Nancy. It's not just a Thomas, it's a doubting Thomas. The difference is with Karen is it's just Karen. It's not a crazy Karen. There's no qualifier to let you know that it's different than a normal Karen. And so maybe that's what my friend's mom was upset about. But no, I don't care. I couldn't care less that it demonizes a certain name. If tomorrow somebody started to refer to a certain set of negative behavior as an Eric, I'd probably take it in stride. I'd probably be proud. Maybe it would be based around me. Maybe a certain negative behavior that I exhibit will start getting called the Eric. I'd be proud of that. But no, I'm not bothered by the name aspect. And, you know, to be honest, I'm not deeply bothered by it at all, honestly. It, it, again, I think that part of this all comes from younger women's war with older women. Because the first people I knew to really pinpoint the Karen seemed to be younger women. And men do that too in their own way. I've noticed this over the years with men who are artistic or nerdy, who aren't athletic, who don't like sports. They kind of do the same thing with like the coach type guy or the jock in general, they kind of have taken this approach where they pretty much hate any traditional display of masculinity and they mock it and they, they feel somehow, I don't know, they, they, they feel somehow put off by it. And maybe they were exposed to it early on, like maybe somebody tried to get them to play sports when they weren't interested I don't know what it was. You know, everybody's story is different. And in some cases, some people's stories are manufactured. Like, I'm of the opinion that a lot of the lore surrounding bullying and the idea of, like, the jocks bullying the nerds, bullying the skateboarders, I believe that happened. But I also think that we've been so overexposed to that sort of scenario in pop culture. Like we've all seen so many TV shows and movies that have that. They have that dynamic between like the popular jock football player and the alternative kids or the nerds or the jocks. Well, I know that like TV shows and movies were basing that on a real dynamic that played out. There was bullying. Football players did pick on nerds. But like what I'm getting at here is that it then took on a whole new life of its own And people who didn't experience that grew up seeing that in movies. They grew up, you know, seeing that on TV, that they almost feel like they themselves experienced it. They almost feel like it happened to them. And I've seen people do this. People I know have done this. I've seen where people have sort of revised their own history to where they actually believe that they were bullied in school. They actually believe that the jocks that we went to school with were the same sort of cartoon jocks that you see in in like TV shows about teenagers. 
And that's a weird thing to notice. And people do that with their parents. They do it with everybody where when they get an idea in their head that things are a certain way, they don't, they don't just start seeing it in, they don't just start seeing it out in the world right now where it doesn't exist. They start seeing it even in their own past where it didn't exist. And with this whole like jock versus nerd thing, I think a lot of people have invented this sort of backstory for themselves, and it plays into the whole adversity thing, which I talked about in the fragile marketing episode, which is like how having some sort of story of adversity has become essential to promoting yourself or promoting your product in the world we're in today. How it seems like you have to have a story of adversity in order to be a legitimate contender in today's market. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be creative. It could be business. It could be social. Just whatever market you're in, having some story about overcoming adversity. And a good example of this played out recently where there's a girl who became a NASA engineer. She's pretty young. She's in her, I'd say, mid-20s maybe. She became a NASA engineer, which is an amazing accomplishment. As someone who thinks NASA should be shut down, even I recognize that that's an incredible accomplishment that I couldn't ever even fathom doing. I wouldn't be able to do that. She's smarter than me in ways that I can't even conceive of. I can't even conceive of the ways in which she's smarter than I am. That's how much smarter than, you know, I don't even understand. I don't even understand the game, <laughs> let alone like how to, how to play that game well math and science and numbers, you know, I don't, I don't know anything about engineering, but I saw that like that wasn't enough where she has been like all over the place telling this story of adversity because she said like in eighth grade, a boy, a boy told me you'll never be a NASA engineer because apparently she's had this lifelong dream of being a NASA engineer. And she says, like, in eighth grade, a boy told me that I'll never be one. And I could believe that somebody made an offhand comment. I can believe that in one of her classes, she said something about wanting to be a NASA engineer. And some boy just said, like, you're not going to be a NASA engineer because kids are just jerks to each other. You know, kids just say things like that offhand. Like, it's, it has nothing to do with even the given profession. Like, if a bunch of kids are skateboarders and someone's like, I want to be a pro skater, there's a good chance that some kid in, like, a flippant, you know, some kid who's just, like, you know, has a, a chip on his shoulder is going to say in response to that, you're never going to be a pro skater. And, you know, if that fuels your fire even more to go and do that thing, that's great. But it also becomes this manufactured story of adversity. Like when the girl who became the NASA engineer was like, I am an, a NASA engineer today because uh, a boy in eighth grade told me I'd never be one. And that just fueled my fire even more. And look at me now. I'm a NASA engineer. I'm a NASA engineer. Look at me. You know, she probably placed a lot more importance on that boy's comment than he did. And not that it's cool to say things like that to people. 
Not that it's cool to respond to someone and say, you'll never do that. But I wonder how much of that is manufactured, how much revisionism goes on. I mean, imagine if I did that. Like, not that I have, like, any success story to promote, but even just, like, on a purely, like, what I do level. Like, imagine if I said, oh, you know, I, the reason why my drawings are the way they are, the reason why I do these drawings is because somebody told me one time that I didn't have the skills to draw in a highly detailed black and white way. And actually, it's funny, too, because I, I do remember a friend of mine once said, like, you can find these things in your past if you dig enough. And I, I do remember I was having a fight with a friend. And at that point in time, I remember, like, just floating the idea that, like, maybe I want to be an architect someday. I don't even think I wanted that. I think that, like, my mom told me that when I was young. I think she was like, oh, you could be an architect or something. And I was like, yeah. And a friend of mine said to me once, he's like, you could never be an architect. Like, you're drawing, like, you don't have the precise drawing skills. And uh, it didn't mean it because we were fighting about something else. And when you're fighting about something else, like, a friend will find a random thing to jab you with. It's like, oh, here's something that I can use. And so I didn't take it personally or anything. And I think part of that is because I didn't actually want to be an architect. I think it was just something that I said offhanded once. Like, trust me, I'm not sitting here as a failed architect sobbing. You know, oh man, I never, I forgot that there was even a moment in time where I even considered wanting to be an architect. But my friend did say something about like not having the the precise drawing skills or something. Uh, It could be true. You know, what he said could be true, actually. I don't feel like I'm that precise. But if I wanted to, I could hold on to that. Like I could have, I could have decided to become an architect and I could be telling you now, the reason I'm an architect is because my friend told me that I, ne- I didn't have the skills. I didn't have the precise drawing skills. Now look at me now. Look at me now. I'm an architect. You know, I, I could do that. I could find some time in my past when somebody said they didn't like something I did. So it's weird to me when people cling to that. And I mean, Michael Jordan did that. You know, Michael Jordan infamously used his Hall of Fame induction speech to trash his uh, high school basketball coach for not believing in him. So there's this strong undercurrent, and I think part of it's natural. I think part of it, I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think it's just society brainwashing us to talk this way. I think there's something natural about wanting to say that you overcame something or that somebody stood in your way and you did it anyway. I think there's something natural that feels good about telling stories that way. But I do think like our culture has reinforced that. And with the direction pop culture has gone with the American Idol approach that I always talk about, I think that we have gotten it in our heads that we actually have to do that. We've gotten it in our heads that we have to have a story about overcoming adversity. And just to bring this back to where I, what I was talking about originally, I think that we've seen that story play out in so many movies and TV shows. We've heard it come out in so many interviews. We see the way that that's used to market things these days, and we think that we have to do it too. And that might be the wrong way of putting it, because I don't think that we think 
It's too many thinks. I don't believe that we consciously think of it. I don't believe that when someone uses some sort of sob story or manufactured story about overcoming adversity, I don't believe they are thinking about it. I think it's become so ingrained in our culture that your story needs to be like that. That we just naturally do it. We either come, we either find some random thing that happened in our deep, distant past, like somebody telling you you're not good at something that they didn't even mean. It was just like a chance to like jab you, you know, we'll find that or we'll even create it because people do create things. I mean, I was talking about sleepers recently and I, this, this episode is not going to talk about pedophilia. We've covered that enough. Audiophilia. But uh, with sleepers, the books, the book and movie sleepers and the author being accused of making up a lot of it. And I was saying, like, what kind of person makes up stories about being sodomized by youth prison guards? But that's a story of overcoming adversity. And the same thing that makes somebody invent or exaggerate the adversity they experienced is the same thing that makes them just write a book about being sodomized by prison guards It's, you know, making that up or exaggerating that. It's the same thing in its own way where it's a, we live in a culture where that's part of the currency. Claiming that you overcame something, claiming that something bad happened to you, that somebody told you you couldn't do something and you did it anyway. That's just become part of the currency. And when you've grown up seeing movies where the, the nerds are bullied by the jocks and the nerds are the good guys... And part of what makes them the good guys is the fact that they overcome adversity. You start looking at your own experiences the same way. You start looking at your own school experience the same way. And that uh, has just become, I don't know. I don't know what our culture would be right now if that wasn't there because it's such a huge part of it. Such a huge part of our culture today involves this, that I don't even know what our culture would be if you removed it. And I don't even think it should be removed. I don't think it has to be removed. There are very real stories of adversity, and I think we will always have a desire to hear them. But when that becomes the currency, you're going to have a lot of fake currency. And sometimes it's hard to challenge it. It can be difficult. But just to get back to um, the way that culture and the way that narratives that are going on in our culture can actually change the way we see our past. They can change the way that we interact with the world in the present. And, And so, like, you can start looking at your own past and see things that were either just a random blip and you can make more about that. And, and, but then you also start noticing things in your present that fit that narrative. And I think that's kind of what's happened with the Karen thing where because people had this word they could use, 
and they wanted to use it, they now had to find more opportunities to use it. And so basically a middle-aged white lady doing anything, asserting herself at all, suddenly became that horrible behavior. It became the worst possible because that's, that's basically what it is. It's like you go from being like white, middle-aged white women are demanding and entitled to they're responsible for this secret genocide that's been going on. They're the ones who have been calling the cops to get black men killed for the last 100 years, 200, 300 years, whatever the timeline is. And what's so funny about that, I guess the irony of it, and this again goes back to that theme of the harder you try to not be something, the more you become it. And it also fits in with the idea of women in their 20s and 30s who don't want to become their mom rebelling against the fact that they are actually becoming their mom, but finding ways to continue to like jab at their mom by being like middle-aged white people are the worst customers. Because there is an element of like, you know, I mean, it sounds so silly. It sounds so psych 101, but like I couldn't help but feel that when these younger women were complaining against middle-aged white women at their jobs, at their customer service jobs, I couldn't help but feel there was a part of them that's that's that doesn't like that woman because that woman represents the group that their mom belongs to. That woman might as well be their mom or their aunt who they don't want to become. And I think that's one of the reasons why they're so sensitive to that type of woman, because they really don't want to become that woman, but they do become it. And becoming that isn't such a bad thing. Yeah, there are the worst examples of it. But just becoming that sort of middle-aged woman who goes out to eat with her friends and, you know, might send her soup back for not being hot enough or for being too hot or for this or that, you know, it's like, that's not the worst thing that you could become. But I think it's incredibly scary for young women to see that. And uh, the reason I went on the whole thing about nerds and jocks is because men do it too. That's my point. Is a certain sort of man hates everything that makes him think of his coach or his dad or a certain male authority figure that he grew up seeing. And yeah, this all sounds like really silly Freudian stuff, but it's not like Freud was wrong about everything. And, and so the men do it as well in their own way. It's just that it didn't take off in the same way that this Karen thing did. And part of that, too, I think, is because everybody has been openly critical of masculinity, of white men in power. Not, not everybody has been critical of it, but it's, people have been talking about that for a while. Like people have been talking about, I mean, what's his name? That comedian turned politician wrote a book called Stupid Old White Men or something, didn't he? That was years ago. That was many years ago. So, I mean, that's sort of been in the air for a while, but nobody had really zeroed in on their wives. Nobody had really zeroed in on middle-aged white women until the last decade. 
So I think that's part of it, too, is that, you know, men have been criticized by these same people. Middle-aged white men have been criticized. And it didn't get narrowed down into a one word. Like, it didn't get narrowed down into Dave. Dave. In the same way that that sort of woman got narrowed down into Karen. But it's not like, my, I guess my point is, is that men haven't gone through this unscathed. And that's the sort of guy that a lot of young men don't want to become. A lot of young men don't want to become like their football coach or like their dad. That sort of aggressive masculine man. So that's a part of it too. But I want to get away from this because I don't like the way this sounds. Even though I believe this, I just don't, it just feels like such a, a psychology cliche to talk this way that I want to avoid it from here on out. Let me take a little, a puff of this vape. But I would say now that a movie is coming out, an algorithm created movie is coming out called Karen about a white woman who terrorizes black people. I think that's a a sign that that buzzword is done and you have to pull the accordion out again. That compressed accordion needs to be pulled out again. Because if you truly think, like if you're somebody who truly thinks the idea of a Karen is the problem that you think it is that needs to be addressed, if you truly think the behavior of middle-aged white ladies is as much of a problem as it is, the word Karen is no longer servicing that idea. And if you didn't notice that last year when it hit peak mainstream popularity to call somebody a Karen, like if you didn't know that that was no longer an effective way to explain that idea, to describe that idea that it represents, well, this movie coming out should tell you right now that that's the the death knell. You know, that's the, um, you know, that that's the bell. That's the ringing of the bell that you shouldn't use that term anymore. And I think it, it's already lost popularity because, because there was a period of time where you were seeing it truly everywhere, which is when this movie idea came about. You know, these people came up with this idea for the movie. The, rather, the algorithm came up with the idea for this movie at the time that everybody was talking about Karens constantly. Um, so this is just the backwash from that. I think the idea is already on its way out. But if, if if somebody truly feels that some sort of criticism of, of middle-aged white women is necessary, well, you're going to have to start describing it again. You're going to have to pull that accordion out again because summing it all up with one buzzword isn't effective anymore. That buzzword is meaningless. And it's not only meaningless it's being used in this really twisted and dark way. It's perverse. It's become perverse. So if you think that that idea is still meaningful, you're going to have to go with the long form description again, because just summing someone up as a Karen is totally meaningless. And the algorithm is just spitting backwash into our culture. The fact that anybody's going to go see that movie at all is just incredible to me. I mean, maybe there will be a market for all of this. Like in the same way that people got into B-horror movies later, or B-movies in general, 
like how a market developed for B movies because like one person said, "Hey, it's so bad that it's good." And that turned into a whole market of B movies where it's like, yeah, I like to watch movies that are so bad they're good. I like to watch horror movies that are so bad they're good. I think that might be what happens with all of these um these desperate embarrassing woke movies for lack of a better term I wish I had a better term for them than that basically these social justice inspired algorithm created movies and tv shows of which this is not the only one and it's not the first and it won't be the last I think we're going to be seeing this for a while but maybe there will be a market for this like maybe in 10 years I'll watch I'll be like I'm going to watch the movie Karen Because it's so bad, it's good. But no, the fact that anybody would sincerely watch this movie is an incredible feat. Like, that is incredible. Like, it's it's an accomplishment. Like, that's bigger to me than putting a rocket on the moon. Like, oh, wow, we... Nasser... Everything goes back to Nasser these days. Nasser put a rocket on the moon. It's like, yeah, but... The people who created the movie, Karen, got people to go see it. They got somebody to go see that movie in earnest. That's more impressive to me than launching a rocket to Mars. The fact that anybody would see this movie and think, yeah, this, is, this was a good idea. Oh, yeah, this is important. Just incredible. And... uh uh, going back, though, to the idea of, uh, you know, being the thing that you're avoiding. What's funny is that's what ended up happening when people started complaining about Karens. Like when people started like very vocally complaining about Karens, they were actually being Karens about Karens. Like there was a video of a lady who called the police on a black man. I don't remember the story. It wasn't the lady. It wasn't the bird watcher. It was a woman in an urban area. It's one of those things that got lost in the just giant wave of trash-filled water that hit our entire culture a year ago. But it was this video of a woman who, I don't know what the story was, but I believe she had called the police on a black man. I don't know why, but somebody decided to start recording video of her and she was in her car just hanging out and she was being harassed by people. I think this may have happened at a protest. I don't remember the exact story. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so freaking sorry. Um, no, but she, she was basically, she had done something. She, she was being accused of being a Karen. So somebody was videotaping her with their phone and then they put it online for everybody to see, which who needs big brother when we are all big brother taping each other all the time and putting it online. But what was so funny is the person who was recording her was being a Karen about this woman being a Karen. So it's like this whole meta scenario. Things get surreal very quickly where people become Karens about Karens. And you could see this where there was like a certain sort of, you know, a certain sort of white woman 
who fancies herself a progressive liberal, who was bashing all these Karens and wanting to call the Karens out and, you know, basically basically asking to see Karen's manager. So it ended up being this metagame where people are being Karens about other people being Karens and not realizing that they're being the thing that they're criticizing. They're being the thing that they don't want to become. The girls who complain about the middle-aged white women at their job who are terrified of becoming that woman actually start to become more of that woman when they start complaining about that woman. That's just my take. That's what I see. Because all of this comes from complaint. All of this comes from giving in to the impulse to nitpick and criticize. That's what's funny is at the heart of all of this is nitpicking and criticizing and being fearful and paranoid. And that's exactly what people are doing when they put Karen's on this pedestal where she represents everything that is wrong with our civilization. Because that's what people did last year. That's what people have been doing. It started with, this is a woman who makes my job really hard. I have to put up with people all day. I'm on my feet. I'm a waitress. I have to deal with this all day. And this woman makes my job really hard. The fact that you could go from that to this woman is a symbol of everything wrong with Western civilization. And, and what's funny about that is the misogyny of it. Where you have a certain group who is being specifically targeted and stereotyped for their age and gender, basically. And yeah, it's, it's talking about a certain set of behavior. But when people learned about the idea and buzzword of a Karen, I guarantee you they started to watch for that behavior. Like they started to look at older women and almost wait for them to act like a Karen, to wait for them to make the smallest complaint, to seem the least bit entitled, to seem overly cautious, you know, to be, uh, you know, whatever it is, that people associate with that buzzword when people learned that that was it, when that was it, Oh, is that a thing? Oh, I didn't know this was a thing. Oh, dude, that's totally a thing. You know, when people realized that it was a quote unquote thing, I guarantee you that it wasn't just that they now had a word for something they had already observed. They were now looking for chances to observe it. And that's sick. It's just, it comes back to looking for things that someone did wrong, which you will find. We are all imperfect people. We are all fallen. I like that phrase, fallen. We are all fallen. And if you want to find imperfections, if you want to find ill behavior, you will find it. And unfortunately, when a buzzword and an idea that goes along with a buzzword like a Karen, when that becomes popular, you're now going to have people looking for that behavior in people. 
and they're going to point their finger and call it out at the first glimpse. But it is funny. It's, it's ironic, I guess, that this progressive buzzword, this buzzword that was created by generally progressive people, targeted older women and put them under a microscope that they hadn't previously been under. All because some of them might take it to a, you know, an intolerable level. But I guarantee you it put all women from that age group under the microscope. It put all of their feet on the coals. And so that's sort of the, the unfortunate irony of it is that it's one of the more misogynistic movements I've heard of in, in, in years. Like the idea of, like, let's call out older white women. Let's call out older women and come up with a name for them and stereotype them and look at all of the times where they do things slightly wrong and talk about how not only does that make the life of waitstaff uncomfortable, it actually contributes to white supremacy and the deaths of black people. If that's not misogynistic, I'm not really sure what is. And I don't play that game. I don't play the game of being like, they're the real misogynists. Oh, those 20 to 30-something-year-old women who used to complain about middle-aged white women 10 years ago, they were the real misogynists. Although that's something people say. People do say, like, women are the real misogynists. I'm not going to comment on that. But it is, I do feel that this whole Karen thing is a, a fundamentally misogynistic idea. And I do think some of the behavior that is associated with that is associated with being a Karen does come naturally to women of a certain age. I'm not saying that it comes out in the same way, but I think it comes from a similar place. You know, the same thing that makes that woman call the cops quickly is the same reason like when I was sledding with you know, my uh, sister's boyfriend as a kid and my mom like stuck her head out the window to like warn my sister's boyfriend not to go down such a steep hill on the sled. You know what I mean? It's like she was warning. She was like, be careful. Like the same, the same thing that like makes a middle-aged woman say like, you better not go down that steep hill. You might get hurt. You know, it, it's the same thing that makes somebody quick to dial 911. You know, it, it's, it's not that it's the same behavior, but I believe it comes from a similar place. It comes from a similar place of caution. It doesn't mean that all people are the same. It doesn't mean that, uh, I don't know, I think there's something to that. And I, I've even noticed that with women I know. Like, I've noticed that women I know who have had kids become much more cautious. And it makes complete sense. Of course you would become more cautious when you have kids. But you can see where that caution can go a number of different ways. And even though I think that we should be allowed to criticize any group of people for any reason, I truly believe that. If, if, a, if a group of people is doing something that has a negative impact on the greater good, I think we should be able to address that without throwing words like misogyny around. 
But if you're going to throw words like misogyny around, I think targeting older women for the ways that they, for the ways that their natural instincts manifest in our crazy modern world, targeting for them, them for that reason seems misogynistic to me, but I don't play that game. I don't play the game of saying like, progressives are the real misogynists because they target Karens. You know, I'm not somebody who likes to play that game. I'm not somebody who plays the game of like, because that's the equivalent, like, it's the equivalent of saying like, well, there's a black entertainment channel, but why isn't there a white entertainment channel? Those are the same sorts of points. And they're the most superficial arguments you can make. And uh, so I'm not going to sit here and use that as an actual. That's not where I'm coming from. I'm not coming from the point of the thing that's wrong with the Karen stereotype is it's fundamentally misogynistic. You know, I'm not going to use that as I'm not going to use that to try to make my point. I'm just saying that if you're going to throw words like misogyny around, it seems very misogynistic. It seems ageist. It seems ageist and misogynistic to target a certain age group of women for a behavior that only some of them do. And we're even interpreting their motivations for doing that. But anyway, um, I find all this very interesting, though, because it, it, it does play into the language topic. It plays into politics. It's where the personal becomes political. And when the personal becomes political, there's really no stopping that train. And that's the issue with the personal becoming political. Because this change happened where the slogan, the personal is political, became the standard. And it's, it's what I was talking about a while back, where like politics are now considered an acceptable topic with strangers. Like if you go to a party, people just either assume you agree with them or they don't care and they just start sharing their politics when you don't even know them. And I think that's a product of the whole uh, politics or personal, you know, the personal is the political idea. But you can see where like that form of thinking in personalizing the political it's like it goes through a prism and comes out the other side like something else entirely. And that's what you see with like middle-aged white women, women, middle-aged white women are difficult customers. Like how that, it went into the prism that way. Like it was this beam of light. Like, oh, I've noticed that a certain sort of customer gives me more grief than others how that enters the prism and then it comes out as that same person is upholding white supremacy and calling 911 on innocent black men which exposes them to possible danger from police like even if there is some sort of line that can be drawn there and i'm not saying there can't be i'm not saying there is no line to be drawn there but what happens, you, you took the entire stereotype of the Karen and you widened its definition to include conspiracy theory level logic about a, you know, a set of behavior that like in our current climate is considered beyond the pale. You, you've taken something that was purely personal and you've pulled it apart 
so far, you've stretched it so far that it now applies to the largest social and political debate going on in our society, which everything is being filtered into that. Everything is entering that prism. And I'm not going to get into that because, you know, this is just one example and I don't want to go on talk for three hours. But you can see where everything is entering that same prism and coming out the same way, where it's a lot of it comes from a personal place. A lot of it comes from a place of observable behavior and experience that the average person might notice. And if they don't notice it themselves, somebody else noticing it and pointing it out makes them go, oh, yeah, that is something that happens. And so we have all of these different personal experiences going on. And they're all entering the same prism and they're coming out like a a completely, they're coming out in this rainbow. And I don't mean anything by that. I'm just trying to use an example, but it's like everything enters as light and it exits this prism as this rainbow, except the prism is manufactured. It's not a natural process. It's some kind of algorithm. A pre, it's a pre-technological algorithm, but then it plays out in the form of online algorithms. It plays out in the form of search engines. It plays out in the form of like why social meteor shows you what it shows. And so things enter that prism in a state of purity, if nothing else. You know, and I don't mean purity necessarily as a good thing, but it comes from a pure place, like a pure observation. But then it enters that prism, and its definition becomes so expanded that you can apply it to anything and everything for any and every reason, anything you want. And... uh, that causes the idea to lose its meaning. It's not just the buzzword that loses its meaning. The entire idea loses its potency when that happens. Because as much as I talk about this like accordion effect of like pushing the accordion in and pulling it out, you know, using that as a way of kind of explaining the way that we simplify language, but then when language has been simplified for too long, we have to expand it again. It has to become more complicated again. In the same way that our taste, sometimes we'll spend, you know, sometimes what's popular is Twitter. Oh, it's a one-liner. Ah, this guy's got great one-liners. But you pay attention to one-liners long enough and you start going, oh, you know what I miss? I miss blogs. I'm going to start reading blogs. And you can see where there's already this trend now of people with newsletters. There are these subscription-based websites that are basically blogs, but they've picked up a lot of steam lately. A lot of independent journalists are using them where they basically have this subscription-based blog and it's not called a blog because the key to reinventing things is to not use the old name. But it's essentially a blog. A blog. 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 You know, it's essentially a blog. And I think one of the reasons why that's becoming popular, and I don't know that it's going to become wildly popular, but I think one of the reasons why that's becoming popular with the Twitter crowd, 
because that's where I've noticed it, is that people have kind of gotten sick of just one-liners and people who can't, by the very restrictive nature of the website, you can't express long-form ideas on Twitter. And that's the appeal of it. But it's also what makes people crave long-form. In the same way that like people watched two-minute-long YouTube videos for years, and then that led to the boom of three-hour-long podcasts. And because radio is old-fashioned, you got to call it something new, which is why podcasts are podcasts and not just online radio. Because you remember like when you would first get on the internet in the late 90s, early 2000s, you would see online radio, and it was a horrible association. You were like, oh, that's going to be poor quality. It's going to sound digital. It always seemed very like poorly made. Like anytime I listened to online radio back in the day, it always felt like it was very poorly made. It wasn't a good experience. Things stuttered, you know, it just, it just wasn't an ideal way. Maybe it was like the speed of the internet at the time, but it just was not a good way to listen to radio. And even just the phrase online radio seemed kind of hokey. It seemed kind of antiquated. And, uh, like calling the, uh, it's sort of like calling the car, what's that name they gave cars, like the iron carriage or what was it? Um, I don't know. Some, it was like, like there was an early name for cars that was like referring to them as horses or something. I can't remember what it was. I wish I could remember that. It's like the, the iron carriage for whatever reason is like sticking in my brain here. I'm going to use my one. Use my one uh, lifeline here. Um, I, I really want to know this early name for a car. Let's see. Well, no, I know that. I know that. I don't know. I'm. I, it, it. Yeah, I wish that I could find this. It's going to take much, too much time. But it's like there's some phrase, I wish I could remember it, that refers to to cars, but it uses like a really antiquated name. It's like the electric horse. Oh, he's driving the, he's driving the mechanical horse. And that's kind of what it was like when you heard online radio. You'd hear online radio, and it was just like, it's an online of version of something that's already old-timey. And podcasting wouldn't have gotten as popular as it is if they had just called it online radio. It would not be as popular as it is today if they stuck by that online radio name. You trick people into thinking something is new by giving it a new name. And if, if anything shows that language you know, is just a placeholder, that's it. Just the fact that we can trick people into thinking something is new just by changing the name, even though what it is, what it fundamentally is, is exactly the same. But uh, one, one second. It's like a horse-drawn carriage. It's like a play on that, maybe. I, I don't know what it is. It's really bothering me. But with all this stuff, all the, you know, just language has a need to simplify itself, but it also has a need to expand once that simplification has lost its purpose. I mean, just to use a silly analogy, it's like 
you breathe in and you breathe out. You know, breathing isn't one way. The process of breathing isn't just inhaling air. You breathe in and you breathe out. That's why I use the accordion. The accordion breathes in, it breathes out. Language breathes in, it breathes out. And things will hit a dead end. But there's some ideas that are just gone. You know, some ideas can breathe in and out and stay relevant. But sometimes an idea is just ruined. Sometimes an idea is completely ruined and you just have to let the word go. You have to let the idea go. And I think that's true for Karen. And I don't see, I don't even see people using it anymore. Like that's a good example of what I was talking about the other day where, you know, when normal people get sick of something like, you know, when the novelty wears off with normal people, like, you know, the idea is just done. Like when normal people who learned the phrase Karen last year stop using it, you know it's done. When an algorithm creates a movie called Karen that's truly like the worst possible representation of what that word means, when that happens, you know it's done. And so that's a good thing. I think it's a good thing that Karen is more or less done, except it's not. Of course, like the problem is, is that prism is still there. Everything is still entering that same prism. So while the idea of like the novelty of calling a certain type of woman who reminds you of your aunt or your mom, when the novelty of that wears off, unfortunately, many other things are going through that prism and you can focus on them in the same way you have. And unlike, you know, a prism that real light passes through and becomes a rainbow, This one isn't pretty. This one makes everything uglier. It undermines our culture. It makes worthless movies that think they are socially relevant. Well, and the best part about that too, which I forgot about, but one of the things I read about the Karen movie is they were saying it ripped off some other guy, like one of those, uh, like like Jordan Peele, who I'm mostly unfamiliar with. But people are like, this rips off his movie, which is perfect. It's perfect because people can never be happy. Like even the sort of person who the Karen movie is was made for. Which is the same sort of person that watches movies about slavery and gets off on the brutality and gets off on like the, the inevitable rape scene. Like that same sort of person is the same person who is like, Oh, the Karen movie. I've got to see that. It's my responsibility to see that. That same sort of person though, now has like a way of turning the Karen movie into a Karen by saying it's ripping off an idea from a black man. It's perfect. That's like the perfect scenario. And it's like they, what that is, what that is right there, the Karen movie being accused of ripping off another movie by a black man, that is feeding the movie through the prism. When you take an idea like a Karen movie and you now feed that through the prism, now that movie 
which is about how white women are agents of white supremacy. Now that movie represents white supremacy itself because it tried to repurpose a black man's idea, which who knows if it even did. Like who knows if it actually ripped him off. So many of the same thoughts are swimming in the zeitgeist right now. It's like I was talking about a while back. Like I was upset that this more well-known comedy figure did a show where he talked about how like hearing your name over and over again, the sound of your name changes who you are. And I was like, he stole my idea. I talked about that. You know, I wanted to practically like be like, I came up with that idea on July 1st, 2010. You know, there's a part of me that like wants to do that. My ego, you know, my ego, Lego, my ego, it kicks in and goes, That's your idea. Or maybe this guy who comes from a similar background as me, whose humor I like, who's around my age, maybe he just thought the same thought. Maybe one day he was thinking about the fact that your name has a phonetic sound and that you hear that phonetic sound your entire life and hearing that sound and responding to that sound and associating that sound with you, with your identity, with your body. That's got to have an impact. That's got to mean something. And so when I heard this other guy talking about something similar, it's not like he said exactly what I just said there, but it's like he's talking about something similar and it makes me go, that's my idea. That's my idea. That's that's mine. And we do that, though, even with something else. Like, we do that not necessarily with things that we came up with. But, like, I mean, I feel that way. Like, I have a friend who's creative, and I saw something that somebody else ripped off. Like, I saw where somebody ripped something off that he had done, and I felt personally invested. But do I know as an absolute fact that they ripped him off? I don't know. It kind of looked similar. It kind of sounded similar, whatever it was. I mean, I can think of, I could be here all day if I wanted to list times where this has happened. But it's, it's a difficult position to be in. But like you can, you can personalize something else that you know somebody did that isn't getting proper credit or you feel it's been ripped off. And so, I don't know. At some point, you just have to recognize that like similar thoughts come up in the zeitgeist and certain people pick up on them. Sometimes people rip someone else off consciously. They outright steal something. Sometimes people rip something off subconsciously. And then sometimes two people stumble upon the same idea. I mean, that happened to me actually, where for years I was making a joke about animals. Like when I would take a picture of my cat, I might like add a caption that was like, what kind of animal is this? You know, what is this? Can somebody identify this for me? Like that was a joke that I've been making for many, many years. And I had never seen Borat. I had never seen the movie Borat. And at some point I found out that he made a similar joke. Like he made a joke in that movie that I think, I believe it's, uh, what kind of dog is this? 
what kind of dog is this? And he's like holding up a cat. And when I found out that that's a joke he makes, I was like, my stomach stank. Stank, Jesus, that's sick. Uh, my sum, my, I can't even talk, dude. I can't even talk right now. My stomach sank. My stomach sank. How long is it going to take me to say this? My stomach sank. I had a sinking feeling in my stomach because I was like, oh shit, like I've been making a similar joke for years and now people, like that entire time, did people think I was quoting Borat? For the last five years, did people think that I was making a Borat joke? Because that's what a lot of people's sense of humor is. Like normal people's sense of humor is usually just quoting movies and TV shows. And they don't judge each other for it. They actually prefer it. Like I've told this story on here before where I was out drinking with a coworker, And we would always just joke around. It was like nonstop just banter and joking. And we were talking about something. And I, I, I kind of said something like, well, that's the kind of guy you, gotta, you just got to take him out back and settle it that way. I don't know what I said. It was something along those lines, though. It was like kind of like a fake tough guy thing. But it was in context. It was like we were being facetious. And then my friend like laughed at it really hard. And then he goes, what's that from? And I was like, nothing. And it, like his face just like, he looked, he, it, it, like it upset him that I made it up. And maybe I misread him. I don't know. But like he laughed at it initially because it sounded like a movie quote. It sounded like something like where you're like, quoting a a Clint Eastwood movie or something. And then when I said I just made it up, it seemed like that made it dangerous or something. That was the feeling I got. Maybe this is a weird anecdote. I mean, I know it's a weird anecdote. But it was like his face dropped when I said I made it up. And and trust and this isn't me being like, "Oh, I I make up funny things because I'm so funny." This isn't even me trying to say that about myself because I don't even think this was that funny. It was just but it was just kind of this like drunk banter. And, I, and I've, ever since that happened, I've paid attention to this. And I, I do believe that there's a certain sort of person who prefers like humor to come from like a TV show quote. Like they would prefer somebody to just quote The Office. They would prefer somebody to just quote Anchorman. Because it's already funny to them. It reminds them of that. But like what's really foreign to me is people who crack up at that. And I guess there are things that I do that about, so it's not like I don't have my own version of that. But it, it's just, I don't know, it was, it's just something I noticed where it's like there's a certain sort of person who is uncomfortable with original humor and, and would prefer people just to reference Anchorman. Like that's their idea of a fun conversation is just one where like somebody goes, I get that reference, you know, which is a lot of like, it's like Reddit humor. Like websites like Reddit are a, a hive of that humor that's basically like, you know, a, a good example is like for, I saw a joke for years that was something like this guy fucks. Like I would see something online and there'd be like a, a picture of a guy and somebody would comment like this guy fucks. And I noticed that people seemed to really respond to that. They thought it was very funny. And I, I knew it, it must have come from something. But then I watched that show Silicon Valley a couple of years ago, which I really liked, actually. Uh, I really enjoyed Silicon Valley. 
I, I found myself laughing hysterically a number of times, which is rare for me when I watch something. Um, but I was watching that and like, yeah, sure enough, like there's a scene where a guy goes, this guy fucks. And I was like, that's what it's from. Because people do, they like humor to be referential. They feel more comfortable with referential humor for whatever reason. I'm not even criticizing people for it. It's just something I've noticed that people like to be like, I get that reference. And because I get that reference, I also understand the context. Like when someone is coming up with humor on the fly, first of all, people just might not be able to perceive it. Like people might not be able to perceive the fact that you're even trying to be funny. And then there's the fact that they might not know what you mean by it. They might not know what your intention is. Whereas if you're quoting Anchorman or The Office, you know what the intention is. It's already safe. That's basically what it comes down to is it's already safe. And I've seen this play out with other people. Like I still think about when I was in college, like my friend Miles and I went to go get weed from a friend of mine. And, uh, but we had to like go through these hoops. Like we had to get weed from like his, his neighbor and these girls were there. And then these like friends were there. So we all ended up watching this documentary and I I wish I could remember what it was. It was like one of those oddities documentaries. It was like a bunch of an assortment of oddities. Like they had those uncle goddamn videos where it was like these kids who would light their drunk uncle's lap on fire and like quickly put it out. They would basically torture their, their uncle when he was passed out drunk. And there were these homemade videos and they like brutalized this guy and it was called uncle Goddamn. It like featured that. And then it featured that artist who did the cover of apocalypse culture. Like he draws these really detailed full color. He does paintings. They're very detailed. I want to say his name's like Joe Cole. I might be getting that wrong. It's Joe. His name's Joe. Um, but it featured him. It was like, here's weird stuff. And so we were watching this documentary and I remember like miles made a joke and it stopped everything. Like it was in a, like like I mean, he's only going to make original jokes. And like everybody stopped, and like the girl paused the movie, and she was like, "What?" And he and he, he repeated the joke, which was obviously going to be less funny because anytime someone says "what" to your joke and you repeat it, it's going to be less funny because time you know comedy is about timing. And it was it was something I laughed at. You know, I knew he was joking. My friend knew he was joking, but the other people in the room, like they stopped the documentary and everybody turned and faced him. And he was only there through me. Like I was the one who knew the the dude we were getting weed from and all that. Like, so he was just my friend who was there with me and they stopped the documentary and they all like made him repeat his joke. And then they asked him to like explain it. And that situation has played out so many times in my life. Where like someone, it just doesn't register that someone's even trying to be funny. And so it turns into this whole like situation where people seem nervous. They like, they're self-conscious because they think they might not be getting something. And then they, I don't know, it, it goes, it goes deep. We could go deep on this. But the point being is just that I've noticed this recurring theme where people just are uncomfortable with original humor, not offensive humor. And this isn't even about me being the funniest guy in the world or anything. I'm just saying that I've seen this play out with other people. It's not just me. I've observed this. I'm not going to come up with a buzzword for it. 
Oh, I, I have a word for it. There's a certain sort of person <clears throat> who doesn't <coughs> either doesn't get original humor because it's not a reference to a TV show or some sort of pop culture, you know, joke, some catchphrase. Or it's a sort of person who either doesn't get it or they don't want to get it because they're not comfortable with original humor because they don't know where it's coming from. And we're going to call them a Sandy. She's being such a Sandy. No, I would never do that. Uh, But it's a situation I've seen play out where like it almost turns into an interrogation because people are confused. And when they're confused, they get very uncomfortable so, I mean, it makes complete sense to me why a lot of people's sense of humor is entirely in the form of references and recycling Saturday Night Live jokes. Like these kids I went to high school with, they they would do a, the leadership class would produce a video that we'd watch in homeroom every week, like a, like a closed circuit TV sort of thing where it was like a fake news show about the high school. We all know what those are. We've all seen those. But they would do a skit. And you can imagine, I mean, you can only imagine how awful this stuff was. And a lot of it were just references and ripoffs of other things. And one week they did like a Mr. Peepers thing. I feel like I'm getting deja vu, so I feel like I've brought this up before. But these kids who were in this leadership class that produced our weekly school TV video, not to be confused with school night TV. Uh, But... uh, they one week they just like ripped off Mr. Peepers, which had been a really popular SNL skit during that time. They just they wore wrestling leotards and they just they literally just ripped off the Mr. Peepers skit. You know, it was famously it had the rock in it where the rock was like the big one. They were like they act like monkeys. If you're not familiar, it's like Chris Kattan and then someone else like a, like the rock will dress up in wrestling leotards and like put big ears on their heads and act like monkeys. And so these kids did it for our high school leadership class. And they just ripped off something else, you know, and and people liked it because it was familiar. They understood the reference. And I overheard those kids talking one day and uh, because I knew them. And they were talking about it and they were really proud of themselves. Like they were really proud of, of themselves for doing that. And I was like, huh, it'd be really difficult for me to be proud of ripping someone else off. And I'm not, you know, I don't know. I mean, they're kids. But original kids exist too. Like, I had friends who came up with the most insanely funny original things during that time. They might not be something that would translate to a, to the school's news show for a skit, you know, on, a, on the school news show. But still, it just, it, I remember kind of like thinking, like, how could you possibly be proud of that? How could you be proud of the fact that you just ripped off a Saturday Night Live skit that everybody's already seen. And like you're proud of yourself for thinking to do that. Like, oh, I'm going to pat myself on the back for having it in my mind to rip something else off. I don't know. I just don't understand that. But, uh, you know, I imagine the school liked it. I imagine like people thought it was funnier than they would otherwise than if the kids had made it up. Like if Mr. Peepers wasn't a thing and those two kids did that same exact skit exactly the same way 
but people didn't know that it was a reference, they might not have liked it as much because there is a certain comfort in knowing where something comes from, even though it is just a reference to a sitcom, even though it is just a reference to Saturday Night Live. And it's the same thing as people preferring chain restaurants. There's a certain sort of person who is scared of restaurants that are not chain restaurants. Like they might have some sort of excuse, like it's not clean, it's not this, but no, they like knowing, they like knowing that you can go to a chain restaurant anywhere and everywhere, and it's going to be almost exactly the same. The menu is going to be the same. The quality is going to be the same. The decor is going to be the same. There are no question marks. There's no mystery. And I know people like that. I know people who will only eat in chain restaurants who are actually scared of going to a hole in the wall. And then there's a whole other sort of person who hates chain restaurants and loves hole in the walls and thinks that people who go to chain restaurants are stupid. And I'm not that way either. You know, because I I grew up, I I mean, I guess I understand this one because growing up, I was that person who was scared of places that weren't chain restaurants. I was such a a picky eater and, and my picky taste came from the fact that I was terrified of most food. Therefore, I was terrified of restaurants that weren't uh, Red Robin. I was terrified of, of most hole-in-the-wall restaurants because I didn't know if they were going to have something that I'm willing to eat. So anyway, that's just... Uh, it's, a, it's a level of comfort that some people have, and it applies to humor as much as it does restaurants, as much as it does food, where the, the same sort of mindset that means hey, I'm kind of scared to go into this mom and pop because I don't know what I'm going to get. I don't know what they're all about. I don't know if their kitchen is clean. I'm going to go to Olive Garden instead. I'm going to go to Applebee's instead because I know what I'm going to get. I know what they're all about. I've seen that same thing play out with humor where original humor can scare people. I mean, it's one of the reasons laugh tracks exist. People always criticize laugh tracks. They're like, oh, why do laugh tracks exist? Like, why do they need to try to tell you to be funny? Well, because a lot of people wouldn't realize it's supposed to be funny. A lot of people would watch sitcoms if there wasn't a laugh track, and they would say, I don't get it. What? I guarantee you. Because that's what happens when you expose people to, you know dry humor for one is that they don't get it like when a sitcom character says like oh you meant i wasn't supposed to eat the burgers from the trash can and then there's a laugh track and then the audience know like the person at home knows oh i'm supposed to laugh at that whereas if the character just said like on a if there was no laugh track on a sitcom and a character just said oh i wasn't supposed to eat the hamburger that was in the trash Someone at home might go, I don't get it. Why would he eat the hamburger out of the trash? I don't, I don't get it. Why would he say that? Why would he do that? Why would he do, why would he do that? You know, without the laugh track, they might not realize that. And that's one of the reasons why I think referential humor is so popular. Because you know immediately how you're supposed to respond to it. And I don't even think it really produces a laugh in most people because I'm the kind of person where like if I've heard something multiple times, I don't laugh as hard. You know, it's like there's diminishing returns on laughter in most cases. 
Like some things truly are just on a whole other level and you can laugh at them forever. But most laughter, I feel like, has diminishing returns where you can only laugh in earnest so many times when you hear it. Like if you were, if you had the misfortune of being a teenage boy, an 18-year-old boy, when uh, Dave Chappelle's Rick James skit came out, like if you had the misfortune of hanging out with a bunch of stoners at that time, you just went around hearing, you know, I'm Rick James, bitch. I don't even want to do the voice. I never even saw it, you know, but uh, you couldn't avoid hearing I'm Rick James, bitch, anywhere and everywhere from your friends, from strangers. And it was like, how funny could that be? Like, I'm not even saying the original thing isn't funny. I've never seen it. But how funny could that be after your friends have, have been saying it over and over again for a month? Like, how, poss- how, how funny could that possibly be? But I think what it is, it's like it reminds them of the fact that it was really funny to them when they saw it. And it's comfortable. It fills the air. It's lighthearted. There's nothing wrong with it. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with people having a referential sense of humor. I guess it's just it's not worth much. It's not that there's anything wrong with it. It's not that someone is a bad person because they prefer their humor to come in the form of references to something else. It's just, uh, I I think that it's just, it's very transient. It's not really valuable to me. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's something I've noticed over the years. I don't know if it's relatable to anyone else. I don't know if anybody else is aware of it. I've talked to friends about it, so I know that at least like-minded people have noticed it. And I've seen others subjected to it. You know, because that's the weird thing about humor is like when it doesn't register with people, they demand an explanation. And, uh, you know, if, if you're just referring to The Office, if you're making, like, if you're quoting a TV show, people are going to understand that. And if they don't, you go, oh, it's from this. And people love that. They go, oh, your weird comment comes from something. Because if it came from you, I might think that you're weird. You might seem weird to me. We've, uh, we've traveled far from the topic of Karen, and that's a good thing. I'm glad. I don't think I have much more to say on that. And I think that, I think that buzzword wore itself out. The first time an algorithm has created a movie completely from scratch, the movie Karen. Yeah, the death knoll. It's the death knoll. Is that the right word? Death knell. <laughs> I've been saying death knoll Death knell Now I'm questioning that Now I'm questioning What death uh, Death tell Death knell Death knoll Death tell Death yell What am I even saying No it's knell Knell is the one that I was thinking of all along no, but when, when an algorithm creates the movie version, I mean, I think that you sort of saw that play out with Facebook when they created the Facebook movie. I don't know that that was an algorithm created movie, but that was kind of the blueprint. And, uh, and it, but again, you know, algorithms exist in nature too. We just don't call them algorithms. Uh, but, uh, so 
this isn't the first time that an algorithm has created something, but it does feel like the first time or maybe one of the first times that something seems to be completely manufactured by a brief, by its brief popularity on social media. Maybe it's not. Maybe this isn't the first time. It's a good example. I'll give it that. Whether it's the first, whether it's, uh, you know, just one in a long line, I don't know. But this seems to be one of the best examples of what I would call an algorithm-created movie. And I think we should be prepared to see a lot more of them. But it's going to be a good thing. We can think of them as tombstones. We can think of these algorithm, we can think of algorithm created media as a tombstone for whatever it's trying to represent. This movie is the tombstone, not only of the term Karen, but also the entire idea that led to the creation of the term Karen and the way that it's been twisted and manipulated and used for all of these quite imaginative ideas. It's the tombstone for all of that. But the problem is things are still going through that prism. Things are going to still go through this same process. And we're going to see a lot of small observations people have of society, of people, of behavior. We're going to see a lot more of those observations, which are going to be personal and anecdotal in nature. But we're going to see them fed through the prism. And any legitimacy the idea had to begin with is going to get so distorted it's going to get so pulled apart that the only place for it to go is under a tombstone and every time that happens should be cause for celebration like i'm celebrating believe it or not after this hour and 40 minute episode i'm actually celebrating the fact that this karen movie is out this is a celebration and i wouldn't call this a celebration of life Exactly. I'm not celebrating the life of the idea. I'm not celebrating the word Karen. But, you know, you can choose to turn a funeral into a celebration. And in this case, I don't even think I'm choosing. I think I'm just involuntarily celebrating that this idea is dead. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.